I'm Liz Sauer, and this is Ghosts in the Burbs, a podcast of ghost stories from Wellesley, Massachusetts. A warning, adults who use adult language told me these frightening tales, these ghost stories, aren't for kids. Ho, ho, holy hell, the season is upon us. Like me, I'm sure many of you are searching for a little escape during this holiday season. At the excellent suggestion of a listener, I pulled together a list of suggested entertainment, to which I will continuously update as I find great new podcast books, shows, and the like. You can find it on the suggestions page at ghostsintheburbs.com. I'll put a link in the show notes so you'll be sure to find it. There you'll also find the link to Claire and to the Ghosts and the Burbs baseball t-shirts. This run is only available for three more days, so we can be sure to ship by mid-December. This week, we must thank Emily Crum for her generous donation on Patreon. Her name will be used in place of our monster-influenced neighbor. Be sure to listen after the ghost story for a season-appropriate tale of several Patreon donors under the influence of a relentless holiday demon. Now, we're on to ghost story number 42, impishness. Are you Liz? I looked up from undoing my Velcro shoes and stood up straight. I am, uh, Emily. I'm Emily Crum. Hi, I said, scanning my brain and trying to figure out if I knew the woman, and if so, from where and when. I thought I recognized your picture from the blog. I love the stories. Are they real? As far as I know, I said with a smile, relieved that I wasn't supposed to know or remember her. I've seen you here a few times, she said. We were at Bespoke, an indoor cycling studio on Central Street. Yeah, I've become a little obsessed. The classes are hard, but they're just so much fun. I like it too. The woman shifted anxiously from foot to foot. I wasn't sure how to get out of the exchange. I said... Anyway, we can check it off the list for today. Back to real life. She smiled. Yeah, so, um, I had this really crazy thing happen to me. Sorry to bring this up here. She waved her hands, indicating the studio. Should I email you instead? No, I mean, sure, but is it about a haunting? Yes. I mean, it's not exactly a haunting, but this strange thing happened when I was growing up. I would never have said anything about it, but it sort of reared up again, and I was thinking you might be able to give me some advice. This is going to be interesting, Claire said, almost causing me to jump. I never thought she would follow me to spin class. You know, I have some time now, I said, without really thinking. Want to grab a coffee at Starbucks? Emily accepted the invitation. I told her I just needed to grab my purse out of the car and that I'd meet her there. There's something so familiar about her, Claire said as I slipped into Uggs. You're following me to spin class now? I whispered to my shoes. Emily stood, venti coffee cup in hand, near the front door. She watched me with nervous eyes as I approached her, indicating that I'd ordered my drink on the app. I snagged the soy latte and we moved to the back of the cafe and found a small table tucked at the back of the space. Will you record this interview? She asked. I was just about to ask you if that would be all right, 
I said, reaching into my bag for the little recorder. Sure, she said. Oh, wait. Emily turned to rifle through the bag she'd slung over the back of her chair. When she turned back, there was a small plastic container in her hands. You like sweets, right? I just made a batch of these. I was going to give this to my daughter's tutor, but I have plenty more at home. They're gluten-free, nut-free, vegan. And they were also covered in powdered sugar. Ooh, thank you, I said happily, plucking one of the chocolates up and popping it into my mouth. I call them chocolate bombs, Emily said, smiling, selecting one of the little chocolates for herself. Mmm, I replied, reaching for another. I'll give you the recipe. I nodded in reply because it would have been rude to speak with my mouth full. Emily smiled and watched me for a moment. Um, you know, I knew Claire. I was a year below her in high school. Oh, wow, I said. The statement took time to sink in. I'd only imagined Claire as a part of the foursome that had led to her demise. I hadn't even considered that she might have had a life outside that little group. And then I had to look down at the table, too overstimulated from trying to maintain the conversation with the woman while listening to Claire chattering away in my ear. That's Emily Crum. She was a freshman. I knew she looked familiar. Okay, I said quietly. Oh my God, is she here? Claire was excited. I didn't recognize her at first. She's stunning. She looks so different. She used to carry that cat backpack and wear her hair in a tight French braid. Tell her I remember her. I relayed Claire's excitement. You really can hear her. That backpack, I was such a nerd, Emily said with a sad smile. I brought a lot of ridicule on myself. Tell her that I remember what Vanessa did in the cafeteria. I'm so sorry, Claire insisted. Oh, that, Emily said after I'd offered Claire's apology. Ugh, what a cringer, huh? There is no need for Claire to apologize about that. Vanessa was and always has been a total bitch. Claire made an affirming noise. Have you seen any of them recently? Hillary, Vanessa, and Jill, I mean? No, thank God, I replied honestly. I ran into them at a cocktail party a few weeks ago. They're looking a little worse for wear. As well they should, Claire hissed. I'm not surprised, I said. Their past definitely came back to bite them. Well, Hillary looks like she's been biting into about half a dozen donuts a day, Emily quipped. Sorry, that was mean. I just, well, they deserve whatever they get for what they did to Claire. I'm sure karma hasn't been kind, I agreed. Fuck karma, Claire spat. They don't have me to genie all their evil plans into existence anymore. I must have winced because Emily said, What did Claire say? She's happy she isn't tied to them any longer, I summed up. I'll bet, Emily said. Is she with you all the time? I shook my head. No, she just sort of pops up now and again. And other spirits, do you just hear them all the time? No, same thing. They just sort of pop up unexpectedly. I mean, Claire is around a lot, but there's no predicting when I'll actually be able to contact her, or any other spirit for that matter. It's unsettling, startling most of the time, because I'm not expecting to hear a voice, and it comes out of nowhere. Emily looked at me, considering. She said, 
Do you ever hear anything else, like other than dead people? Uh, I have in the past, but it's been rare, thankfully. Do you believe in monsters? She asked abruptly. Um, well, I don't know. I've interviewed a few people who've encountered them, and I do believe in ghosts, so yeah, I guess. I mean, why not? Emily chewed on the inside of her lip. I've never told anyone this, but I'm frightened. It's come back. What has? I asked, intrigued. Oh, no, Claire said beside me. The imp, Emily said in a small voice. I was certain that I'd contain the creature, but I wasn't cautious enough. Imp? That's just what I called it when I was seven and the name stuck. I don't really know what it is. Be careful, Claire said, and that was the last time I heard from her for three days. I grabbed another chocolate. It paired perfectly with the latte. How in the world did you meet an imp? Emily began. When I was seven, I used to play in a creek behind our home. I grew up over on Woodland Road. When I indicated that I wasn't familiar with the street, she explained, It's the dead-end road that runs right behind Elmwood Church. It's a short street, only about eight houses, and ours was at the very end, at the edge of Boulderbrook Park. I was, well, like I said, I was a complete nerd. I got into this phase where I would build dams across the creek, creating different models and trying to figure out which design worked best. That doesn't sound nerdy, that sounds fun, I commented. It was, actually. Emily reached back and undid her ponytail. She brushed her thick auburn hair with her hands and then pushed it up into a messy bun on top of her head. Claire was right. She was absolutely stunning. Clear skin, free of makeup, soft brown eyes. She wasn't skeletally thin, which seemed to have become the norm for many women in town. Instead, her cheeks had a nice plumpness to them. She looked younger than she was, which I guessed at based on my knowledge of Claire's age. Rather, what Claire's age would have been had she not died tragically as a teenager. Emily continued, I got pretty good at it, the dam building. I scavenged old wood boards and found that bracing them upright with sticks, then gluing the structure in place with mud, created the most sturdy dam design. Oh, you really were a nerd, I said, jokingly. Emily let out a bark of laughter. I truly was. There was a stream that ran behind the house I grew up in, I said. I used to build dams too, certainly not as advanced as yours. I don't know what made it so much fun, but it really was. Emily nodded her head in agreement. Isn't it funny how we change? The thought of being up to my ankles in muddy water, padding handfuls of mud into rotting boards absolutely skeeves me out now, but then... She trailed off. Anyhow, I was building one of those dams, digging up dirt about five or six feet from the creek and hauling it over to my beautiful structure. As I was digging in the dirt, I found something. A cookie tin. You know those blue ones with the boring shortbread cookies that pop up around Christmas time? It just appeared, about four feet down in the dirt. It had rusted slightly, but only along its seams. Four feet! You really were digging a good-sized hole, I said with a smile. I suppose I was. It was pretty awesome. But I just stared down at the tin for a bit, 
wondering if I'd unearthed someone's dead hamster or rabbit or something, but curiosity got the better of me. I brought it up and set it on the ground, stared at it some more, imagining that it was something spectacular, because that was always the dream, right? Discovering something magical and secret in the woods. I played around with the idea that I finally had. Eventually, I went for it and opened the tin. Inside was a silk scarf that had been knotted around something, creating a small little package. It took me some time to undo the knot. My fingernails were painfully short. I was a nail biter, so I really had to work at it. As I was doing so, I heard something splash in the stream behind me. I spun around and saw something scurry up the bank and into the underbrush. It unsettled me. I tried to tell myself it was just a little critter, but if that had been the case, it must have been sickly. It was gray like a squirrel or rabbit, but it didn't have any fur. Slightly unnerved, I went back to work on the scarf. When I finally opened it, I wasn't disappointed. Wrapped inside was a delicate gold chain bracelet with a charm, a glass ball the size of a marble with a black spot right in its middle. Weird. That's all that was in there? No, there were some dried leaves and flowers in the scarf with a bracelet. I suppose that if I found the tin now, I would assume it was some sort of tribute or remembrance for a lost loved one, but then I thought I'd dug up buried treasure. I slid the bracelet on my arm and threw the scarf back in the tin. I'd carelessly scattered most of the dried foliage on the ground as I'd untied the scarf, though. I threw the tin back in the hole and covered it back up with dirt. Cue the ominous music, I noted. You know it, Emily replied grimly. In fact, it began to rain on my way back home. The rain actually lasted for several days, an intense band of storms that turned the land near the creek into a muddy mess. I tried, but I never could find that tin again. It was as if it had disappeared. You wanted to put the bracelet back? I guessed. Desperately so. Emily affirmed. Why? It marked me, made me his, she said, her voice low. I'm afraid to ask, I said, matching her tone. It was little things at first, hiding my dad's car keys to make him late for work, spilling milk on my brother's baseball cards, but it got worse. I did much worse things. The bracelet made you do them? No, no. The imp made me do those things. The bracelet simply marked me as his. How? I don't know how, exactly. Magic, I guess. Old magic. I would get ideas in my mind, bad ideas, but they weren't my ideas. The thing put them there, made the ideas too compelling to ignore, he snuck them right into my thoughts and made me think that they were my own. I think it had something to do with the way he watched over me as I slept at night. What now? Yeah, the rocking chair from when I was a baby. It was still in my bedroom. I had it in the corner near my bookshelf, and I used to read there. Soon after I found the bracelet, the rocking chair would move from the corner to the end of my bed, as though someone had been sitting there watching me sleep at night. I blew out a breath. That is truly terrifying. It was. I accused my older brother of moving the rocking chair, but of course he wasn't the one doing it. 
I began to remember my dreams, though I suspected that some of them weren't dreams at all. I dreamt of a small creature rocking in the chair at the end of my bed, quietly suggesting the bad ideas. What did he look like? He was small and gray, like the thing I'd seen in the forest after I dug up the bracelet, pudgy around the middle with rolls encircling his neck, though his legs were so skinny they looked as though they couldn't possibly hold him up. His hands were horrible, with long, sharp fingers like little gray toothpicks. He would do this thing where he rolled his wrists around and around while he spoke to me at night. It was oddly calming, even when the things he suggested were terrible. What did he suggest? At first, it was just annoying tricks to plan my family, but they turned mean. I dropped the bowl my grandmother had given my parents as a wedding gift, slammed it on the ground on purpose, and said it was an accident. I poured bleach into a load of dark laundry that contained my brother's baseball uniform. And then it wasn't just my family anymore. I woke up one morning and looked out my window towards my next-door neighbor's house. A girl named Monica lived there. We'd been friendly, not exactly friends, though we would walk to school together sometimes. Out my window, I saw that someone had written in large letters with a black marker along the side of her house. Monica is a fat bitch face. I laughed, but then apologized. Sorry, it's not funny. No, it's silly now, but then that was the height of name-calling. There was no denying that I had done it. My handwriting was perfectly recognizable, and I got into a lot of trouble. The thing was, I didn't remember doing it, and that's when things shifted. I could remember, even enjoy the little tricks I played on my family. Enjoy isn't the right word. Maybe I was channeling his feelings, but part of me did get a kick out of the mischief. But when the mischief turned mean, I had no memory of it. A family friend raised prized checkered giants and kept them in a hutch in their yard. Someone opened the cage door and let them all out. I don't have any memory of it, but I know it was me. Those poor rabbits. There were so many more coyotes back then. They didn't stand a chance. There were other instances, but I try not to think of them. I took to the library and found plenty of fairy tales about mischievous creatures, and that's where I learned about imps. They were described as mischievous troublemakers, but the only difference was that in the fairy tales, the imps were the ones carrying out the mischief. I didn't find any examples of them holding influence over people. I've searched for years, trying to find someone with a situation like mine, but I can't find anyone with quite the same story. I have found people online who say they had small monsters in their bedrooms as children, Monsters who watched them sleep, but none of them mentioned being controlled or influenced by the creatures. It was more like their monsters were simply there to terrorize them. But back to my childhood, when I realized I had no control over my actions any longer, I begged my mother for a tin of those stupid Christmas cookies. She thought I'd be disappointed by them, but thankfully they were under the tree Christmas morning. I had tried just taking off the bracelet, but that didn't work, so I thought maybe it was the tin that could hold the magic. I stole some of my mom's potpourri, sprinkled it in there, and put the tin at the back of my closet. And over time, I felt the creature's control less and less. 
I stopped forgetting what I was doing and could discern when I was being influenced by him to do something bad. Why didn't you bury it again? I didn't want anyone else to find it. And that took care of it, huh? You never saw the thing again? I asked in disbelief. Not exactly. Emily pushed the sleeve of her puffy coat up on her left arm, revealing a delicate gold chain bracelet. She turned her wrist side to side to show off the marble-sized charm. Why the fuck are you wearing that? I leaned back in my seat, repelled by the deceivingly pretty bracelet. She pushed the sleeve back down, covering up the enchanted object. The tin moved with me from home to home, first to college, then to several apartments, and finally back out here to Wellesley. I've always been so careful to conceal it, so no one could find it. Who found it? My daughter. Oh, no, I breathed. We had a couple frustrating days. The jack-o'-lanterns were all smashed on our porch, and then my wedding band went missing. I began to get suspicious when I saw what looked like dried pumpkin innards on her sneakers. Then she began refusing to take a bath. She didn't ever want to take off her long-sleeved shirt. I insisted that she did, and then I saw it. Emily stared down at her wrist. How long... I began. Have I been wearing it? Emily finished. Almost a week. That's why it's so crazy that I happened to run into you at spin class. It was like I was supposed to tell you that you might be able to help me. Synchronicity, I said, reaching for the last chocolate bomb. Could you? I mean, do you think you might be able to help me? I chewed and considered. I don't know if this is something Biddy could help with, but I actually do know this psychic. Her name's Molly Vale. She dealt with her own monster. I could put you in touch with her. If nothing else, maybe she could, like, read the thing and figure out where it came from. I would truly appreciate it. But why don't you just put the bracelet back in the tin again? Emily shook her head. My daughter would have to be the one to do it. Okay, I said. She won't do it. Why not? She's... Well, she's a lot like I was when I was her age, the poor thing. She marches to her own drummer. She's never had many friends, and she likes him. It. She thinks he's her friend. Three days later, Claire popped back up while I was rereading The Life-Changing Magic of Tidying Up and hoping for inspiration. You need to deal with that basement, she said out of nowhere. Why do you think I'm trying to read this book? I said, after the jolt of surprise had worn off. That book isn't going to help you with what's going on down there. I clapped the book shut. I just wanted one normal minute, one moment where I could lose myself in the rich literature of sweater folding. Well, then just tell me what's going on down there. I was met with silence. Annoyed, I said, where did you go anyway? You bailed on the interview with Emily. I thought you were excited to see her. Claire took long enough to answer that I thought maybe she'd gone again. I saw one of those things, she said finally, when I was trapped in between. An M? I asked. Yes, they're awful. 
You're safe from them unless it's been assigned to you, and then there's basically no hope. What do you mean, no hope? There has to be a way to get rid of them, right? No one can get rid of them. They're forever. A sincere thanks to Sarah Ryan, Melissa Krim, Jenny Sheridan Pecoraro, Claire, Kathy Robinson, and Lindsay Kearns for all of your generous support on Patreon. Without it, this podcast wouldn't exist. If you haven't yet, head over to check out Ghosts in the Burbs on Patreon.com, where each patron tier carries with it a small token of my thanks. The following patrons chose the $10 per month tier so that I might create a spooky story just for them. And this spooky tale is just right for the season. Allow me to introduce the major holiday demon. Not to be confused with the minor holiday demon, that devil of the three-day vacation and anniversary drama. The major holiday demon works sporadically throughout the year, and she's a master agitator during significant get-togethers with loved ones. But her time to shine, the time when all of the other demons of discord watch and covet her sly skills, is that tight electric span between Thanksgiving and New Year's. You might not realize it, but you know the major holiday demon, though she's easy to miss because her voice sounds like your voice, recalling holidays past with all their slights, arguments, deep cuts, and shimmering rage. She begins to pull up these memories the last second the last of the trick-or-treaters returns home. Let's follow her as she makes her way across New England and listen in as she whispers in the ears of some Thanksgiving partygoers. Carly Swisher was sipping a white wine spritzer when she was cornered by Aunt Sarah. That community college you dropped out of, what was it called again? Aunt Sarah asked in a booming voice. My Andrew... He's in his last year at Duke, remember, says he might know someone who took a semester there. Tell her the family should start a drinking game where you take a shot every time she makes a passive-aggressive comment, whispered the demon. Little does she know that her Andrew is his fraternity's main hookup for Oxy. Keshley Phillips was spoon-feeding pumpkin pie to a fussy one-and-a-half-year-old, too exhausted to think straight. I just never had any trouble losing the baby weight with you kids. I was so busy, it just fell off, her mother pronounced. That's because those diet pills her doctor prescribed were legal speed. They also turned her into a raging bitch. Remind her how she screamed at you for half an hour, then locked you and your sister in the mudroom for spilling nail polish on the kitchen table. Jackie Douglas was stuck in her parents' living room, making small talk with her cousin. Did you see the new Halloween? They aren't making them like they used to, Cousin Greg said with authority. Remember when he said that Ghost Adventures was fake and how Ghost Hunters started the genre and as far as he was concerned, they finished it? Let's see if he says cautiously skeptical. Oop, there it is. What a skeptic, right? Remember how he claimed that he could taste other people's emotions? What did he say that anger tasted like? Oh yeah, Cheetos. Audrey Young took back the red wine like a shot and tried very hard to maintain an interested expression on her face. 
So then Jenna, who I totally didn't even want to be a bridesmaid, but since her husband is one of the groomsmen, Eric said I had to ask her. So she literally hasn't made it to one event, neither of the engagement parties or the tea that my mom threw. She didn't even come to the planning brunch at the Four Seasons, and now she can't make it to our Jack and Jill shower. You are so lucky you aren't getting married anytime soon, Jackie. You have no idea how stressful the whole thing is. Should you tell her you swiped left on Eric's photo this past August, right after they announced their engagement? I wonder if he's still on there. Never mind, you know he is. I give them two years, tops, before he gets himself caught cheating. But you know then she'll just get pregnant so he won't leave. Oof, that major holiday demon is one snarky bitch. Listen closely for her voice, dripping with sarcasm and venom this holiday season. She'll see you soon. This has been Ghosts and the Burbs. Good night, sleep tight, and don't forget your nightlight.